1: Greetings, and thank you for joining us on The Voice of the Shepherd in this week for His Excellency, Archbishop Alexander Sample. We have Auxiliary Bishop Peter Smith. Bishop Smith, it's always a delight to have you joining us here on The Voice of the Shepherd. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Dina, it's great to be with you, and also all the people who are listening on live or on live stream and or on a recorded uh, version of this uh, program. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for your support for uh, uh, Marta Day Radio.
1: What I wanted to have us talk about a little bit, Bishop Smith, is we've been hearing so much about the Eucharistic revival, and recently in the Church, kind of the close of the Easter season, we had Corpus Christi, again, this reminder of Jesus's body and blood are food for the journey. So I thought you could help us unpack some different pieces to help us better understand You know, when Jesus gave this teaching to the disciples, we even hear uh, some of his disciples, in fact, many, walked away when he talked about his, his body, his blood, his flesh as food for the journey. So let's talk a little bit about this living bread. And if we go back to the history of just God revealing himself to us bit by bit. Where can we start to see this idea of a living bread, a a food for sacrifice, a food for salvation?
2: Well, when Jesus said those words, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you, that's the basis of our Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. There's more to to it than that, but that's key. When he said those words, he was speaking to Jewish people who understood them in their context, and in the context— not only of Jewish culture, but the culture of the time. And in ancient times, they had this notion, it was very interesting, They that when you sacrifice to a deity, you'd bring an animal and you would sacrifice the animal to the deity, the deity would inhabit the animal. Mm. And then when they, they, they burned the flesh of the animal, whatever it was, uh, they would only give a portion, a small portion would be left on the altar for the deity. The rest would, another portion would be given to the priests uh, of the whatever temple it was or the, or the people at the temple, and then the person offering the sacrifice would have a an essential a little little uh, meal together with their friends, and they would eat the remainder of the animal that was sacrificed to the deity. And their understanding was because the deity, in the course of a sacrifice it inhabited this animal when they would, consume the burned or remains of that animal, they would be filled with the presence of the deity. Mm. So it's a way in which the deity would inhabit their lives, and then they would go forth from there. So that's sort of sitting in the cultural background of what Jesus is saying. So people have that understanding, and so what Jesus does is he uses something in their culture or in their worldview or in their—everything in the background to help bring forth the particular message or truth, in this case, of what we now call the Eucharist to those people. Uh, even then, of course, pe- some people looked at him and said, you're crazy, uh, obviously because he was pointing to himself as the thing that needed to be consumed. Right. So that's sort of sitting in the background of what Jesus is saying when he starts talking about what we today call Um, The Eucharist, which we understand as transubstantiation, which is a long T word, Mm -hmm. but uh, we often refer to it as real presence.
1: Right. And this idea of sacrifice, you know, I think in today's terms we think— okay, I'm going to sacrifice to accomplish a particular goal, whether it's a business goal, I'm going to have a health and wellness goal, I'm going to have a financial goal, I'm going to sacrifice something, or parents who obviously sacrifice for their children to provide. But what were some of the understandings of, from the ancient days of what a sacrifice meant? So as we're looking at Jesus' sacrifice, maybe we can get a better idea of what this kind of a sacrifice is all about.
2: Well, one notion of sacrifice was that you wanted to appease the gods. So you'd make the sacrifice that somehow the gods would look favorably or mm. a particular deity would look favorably on your request. So there was that notion of sacrifice. But Jesus changes it and turns it on his head because he becomes the sacrifice right. for the good of all creation and the good of humanity. Jesus becomes the sacrifice and that that's how he one with the key one of the key ways he maintains his presence for, with us and for us in the world in which we live. So Jesus turns that around. But you know, and, and we also have something like that in our culture and our understanding. Is sometimes people sacrifice themselves to mm-hmm. save others. There was a story just recently of a man whose two children were swept away by a river, and he dove into the river to save them, and he managed to save them, but he himself died. So you look at that and say, this man gave his life. He sacrificed himself to save others. So this exists within our culture. And so for the the notion of sacrifice, it isn't just for a particular goal or achievement and so on. You can give your life for another. And the church has now recognized this as another way by which people can be canonized. You know, in the whole canonization process, it used to only be two main grounds. One was martyrdom, and then the other one as a life of holiness. And more recently, uh, uh, in the last uh, decade or so, Pope Francis has brought forward this notion of a life given for others. Mm. And so we're starting to see people in that category now who—it wasn't a case of where— there were martyrs in the sense that they were told, renounce your faith, or they were just killed because they were Catholics. Um, and it may be that they have lived a holiness of life, but we also recognize that now, somebody sacrificed themselves for the good of another. Blessed Stanley Rother is an example of that.
1: Right. Was that in Wyoming? I'm trying to think in Wyoming. Oklahoma. Of, Oklahoma, yep. Oklahoma State, one of our United States Saints recently. Recognized. Yeah, and, uh, he, he
2: was killed in Latin America, but he was from Oklahoma.
1: Right, right. We're talking with Bishop Peter Smith on The Voice of the Shepherd, and looking at the living bread, and I think as, as I've come from a Protestant tradition into the Catholic Church, that John 6, that, that big unpacking of the, the life and the living bread discourse, this is what can hold people back and kind of wonder, what about the Eucharist? Um, what about some of these words? That Jesus says, Eat my flesh, drink my blood, you won't have life without me. These are these are very upfront, harsh words, but this is the truth that Jesus preaches that we take to be our Eucharist, our celebration of holy masses, really following what Jesus says.
2: It's a little ironic because You know, sometimes we're accused of not taking Scripture. uh, Literally, right? (laughs) So we we take the words of Jesus very carefully. And so this is an example of that where we take the words of Jesus very carefully. So the question isn't how do we get out of it, but how do we understand the words that Jesus has spoken? And in one sense, it's revelation unfolding. Mm -hmm. So we have the revelation that God has given us. The ultimate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. In the church, we talk about revelation as scripture, sacred tradition, and then the magisterium teaching of the church in a narrow sense. So those are the things that, we, that safeguard revelation for us. So we have revelation, but we grow in our understanding of revelation because we, we are people on, who are subject to chronological time in our lives. So, you know, when you were in first grade, you weren't doing differential calculus or non-Euclidean geometry. There is such a thing where parallel lines can intersect. It's three-dimensional geometry. It's fun. But you don't start there. You start with basic arithmetic, Mm -hmm. memorizing your times tables, and all these kinds of things. And then you start building on from that. So you grow in understanding. And this is just part of the human experience and has always been that case just in whatever area of life. We don't just have instant knowledge and instant, full and complete knowledge. My dad would always tell me that when he was at school, he was told the atom is the smallest particle and there's nothing smaller. Well,
1: we found out different <laughs> <yeah>. today. <laughs> in
2: his lifetime, that changed pretty quick. Yeah. So and the same is true of revelation. So we have revelation that comes to us through Jesus Christ, through scriptures, through the sacred tradition of the church. And how do we grow in our understanding? How does the church grow in its understanding? And if you go back to the Old Testament, you look at Abraham. Abraham was a polytheist; he worshipped multiple gods, and then Yahweh reveals Himself to Abraham. Abraham puts his fa- faith in Yahweh, and you begin this journey. Mm-hmm. And so all the way there's progressive revelation of self- in salvation history for the people of Israel. And so now we have the ultimate revelation of God, Jesus, and so. We grow in our understanding. So that's the church's approach to this. So Jesus uh, speaks these words and we grow in our understanding of it. There was an understanding of the Eucharist from the very beginning, but what does that mean? How does that impact these areas of our lives? So how is Christ present in these things? And as culture changes, the world changes, so we as Catholics have to discern What does this revelation that we have been given, this deposit of the faith, what does this mean in this context? So for example, bioethics, you know, even a 100 years ago, they weren't dealing with any of the stuff we're doing today. So Jesus says these words, and we can look at them as they're they're tough. But as human beings, we, we know we don't instantly have full understanding. So it's like when Peter says to Jesus in response, when he says, are you gonna leave me too? After you know, and, and Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Did Peter understand what Jesus was saying when he said, Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you? Of course not. But what Peter was saying is, effectively, Lord, we don't understand this either, mm-hmm. but we know you, Jesus, and we're mm-hmm. putting our trust in you. Right. And so the Holy Spirit comes after Pentecost, and that knowledge. And that understanding develops in the life of the apostles and disciples. And that's how the Holy Spirit works through the church down through the ages until today and going forward.
1: Right. And I think that gives uh, gives me encouragement at least that I don't need to know it all, but I trust in Jesus. I trust in the tradition. I trust in that faith that's been given to me. And little by little— with the Holy Spirit, little insights will come to, to be aware, but it comes with a relationship, a
2: personal relationship with Christ. Yeah, so if that personal relationship isn't there, then it simply becomes an academic pursuit mm-hmm. or blind obedience that what does this mean? Um, but one of the classic definitions of faith, is of uh, uh, theology, is faith seeking understanding. So we start from that p- perspective of faith and we grow in our understanding. So think about it in terms of a child being raised by their parents. You know, the child has faith in their parents and as they grow and get older in life, their understanding grows. So in a sense, we put our trust in Jesus, in his people, the church, and we seek to grow an understanding guided by the teaching of the church and guided by the, the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us grow an understanding of these things. Many of us have had the experience of reading a book on the spiritual life at some point in our life of faith, and it's like, well, this doesn't mean anything to me. And then after you've, five, seven, ten years later, after you've gone through a whole bunch of things in your life,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: read that book again, and it's like, oh, my goodness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now I get it. Now I understand because I'm at a place in my life where this means something to me. This makes sense to me because God has brought me along to this point. Sure. so that I can receive the grace that comes from this.
1: Right. You mentioned that big long word, transubstantiation, and so let's talk about that word, we talked about body and blood, and you mentioned real presence. How are all these connected with our our awareness of Christ's presence in the Eucharist?
2: Well, transubstantiation is our understanding as Catholics of what happens to the bread and the wine when the priest invokes the action of the Holy Spirit and prays the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. The Holy Spirit changes the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus. That's what we call transubstantiation. It's the real presence. This isn't a symbol, this isn't anything else. This is the body and blood of Jesus. Now, it still looks like, unless Mm -hmm. there's a Eucharistic miracle happening, it still looks like the host and the wine. Mm-hmm. So it still looks like that outwardly, but the essence of it has changed. So the external th- aspects, the accidents, as, we, as they would say philo- philosophically, it looks like bread and wine, but it is now the body and blood of Jesus by faith, by the action of the Holy Spirit. That's what we call transubstantiation, and more recently people talk about the real presence as a way to to explain that. Now. That's often problematic uh, for people, particularly in the modern world, who tend to be much more rational uh, in their sense of, you have to explain everything. What's the science? You know, we hear that expression, mm-hmm. what's the science? Sometimes I think people who say that have more faith in science, Right. <laughs> I mean, to believe everything it says. You know, my dad, as I said, my uh-huh. dad was told the, the atom is the smallest particle, so the 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 challenge for folks like that is how can that be the body and blood of Jesus and still look this way and so other churches grapple with this and have various aspects of is it just a uh, a symbol is it something more than that uh, but for us as Catholics and for the Orthodox it's very clear mm-hmm. this becomes the body and blood of Jesus now I have it's uh, I was struggling to explain this to somebody once, and it, uh, it has to be the Holy Spirit popped into my mind, the image of marriage, a wedding. So almost all of us have been to weddings. I've done lots of weddings. I love doing weddings. They're a blast. <laughs> um, it just It's just great to see you have the bride and the groom here. And the, the heart of the wedding is the exchange of consent. So, when the groom says to the bride and the bride says to the, the groom, those words, pledging themselves to each other, I, John, take you, Mary, to be my wife. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. And Mary responds to John similarly in the same words. At that moment, the two are married. Is there something different? of course there is mm-hmm. and everybody there knows it mm-hmm. we we may not be able to articulate or explain it clearly but you still have before the consent you had john and mary mm-hmm. looking very happy or now after the consent you have john and mary hopefully even happier <laughs> right but there's something new there the two have become one
1: mm-hmm.
2: so there's a new reality uh, there's a, the the things have changed even though externally John looks like John and Mary looks like Mary. Mm-hmm. So this thing, this notion is not foreign to us in our daily life. This isn't weird. I mean, this is very common, this notion, of uh, th- something that is radically changed and transformed uh, in its essence, even though not you don't see it externally. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's something that helps explain for us, yes, this is what God is doing, and he's doing something in a way that we can understand as human beings. And I found that very helpful with people. You know, they start thinking about it. Oh, you didn't th- never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't either until <laughs> that moment when I was trying to explain this, and uh, it, it seemed to me that was a, an image that the Holy Spirit gave me at that moment to explain. But the bread and the wine does become the body and blood of Jesus Christ by the action of the Holy Spirit that the priest invokes and then he, when he prays the words of institution.
1: So during the Holy Mass, Bishop Smith is, and I think about this is a time of year, especially during the, before we get into fall, I know there's people just learning about the church they're inquiring this is a time of inquiry they may be seeking for the first time who is jesus who is god who is the holy spirit what is church for me if they came to a mass the first time as they follow that priest and look at and listen to the prayers when is this transubstantiation going to happen and and how do we kind of get a sense okay something's different here
2: That happens during the Eucharistic prayer. So when you come into Mass, there are different elements that make up the Mass. The two key aspects are the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, and we have things that join them and things on either end. So we begin Mass with the sort of entrance procession coming in, and then we start with the penitential rite. So we prepare ourselves. Um, And essentially, there's a moment where we— repent of whatever we need to and ask God to cleanse us. Then we move into the liturgy of the word, which is listening to uh, the word of God and the scriptures proclaimed. We respond to that with the Psalms. We listen to the gospel, which is, uh, we stand for it. And at the end, we sing the hallelujah before it, except during Lent. We stand for the gospel and at the end, we say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So in the words of the gospel proclaimed, it's Jesus speaking to us. Then there's a homily, and then we do the intercessions after that. And then we transition to the liturgy of the Eucharist. And the first element of it is the preparation of the altar. So you'll notice the the altar servers or or acolytes will assist the priest or deacon in preparing the altar. If it's a Sunday Mass, gifts will be brought up and so on. And then uh, when that's concluded, we all stand and the priest begins what we call the eucharistic prayer and after we sing the holy holy or or pray it we kneel that's when the eucharistic prayer is prayed by the priest at that point and depending on the, the parish or the masses there are other moments that will will signify the importance of it many parishes use the ringing of the bells usually when the priest extends his hands over the gifts and invokes the action of the holy spirit and then when he raises the the host, and then when he raises the chalice. um, If it's a really fancy one, like we just did recently at Our Lady of Lavang with the Freedom Mass, we have incense. We incense the altar Mm -hmm. beforehand as well. And sometimes the altar servers will be in front of the altar incensing during the words of consecration and the elevation. So all of that is designed to show this is the moment when the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus. God is made present on the altar. This is why we have altars. You know, Obviously, if you're in the, in the military in the field, you use whatever flat surface you can. In other situations, you do that. But in our churches, we have altars which are dedicated and consecrated because this is where the action of God happens in transforming the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus. And the Eucharistic prayer will continue through. And then at the end of it, we sing the great amen or say the great great amen. We stand up and then we move uh, to the preparation for the reception of communion. When that's concluded, we conclude. And then the dismissal for Mass. Right. But that's the moment, the, the Eucharistic prayer, during the Eucharistic prayer, the uh, those moments when the priest extends his hand and invokes the action of the Holy Spirit and then with the, the prayer over the host and then over the wine, praying the words of Jesus at the Last Supper.
1: And you mentioned there are two times when we're kneeling, we're adoring the Lord because the Lord is present, and so there are those two moments after the holy, 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 and then we have a Lamb of God you, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, then we kneel. Kneeling is a, a gesture of adoration,
2: Yes, and reverence. We want to reverence um, because, in a sense, this transcends human reality. So we are we we are expressing it's a sign of reverence at the sacredness of what's there. Now, obviously, not everybody can kneel, but other people can show. You can show reverence and other gestures Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, respect, reverence, and so on for what's there. But yes, that's, that's part of the reason why the church uses kneeling at different points in the ritual of the Mass, is to show reverence, uh, respect uh, of, of the transcendent that is made real in our midst.
1: And as we just come to a close in our discussion today of the living bread, you know, as we receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, how can we make that more fruitful? You know, Encouragement for us to really be able to help that guide our daily lives. So here's some practical
2: things I use with people. When the gifts are brought up or placed on the altar, the bread and the wine, they're not just discrete gifts in themselves, they're representations Mm -hmm. of us. And so one thing to look at is to say, place yourself in that bread and that wine, Mm -hmm. place yourself. And it's a way of saying, Lord, as you change, the bread and the wine into your body and blood. Change me, Lord. Change me into what you have called me to be. And you can be specific. Lord, change this area of my life where I struggle. So there's one way that you, you can make that really specific for yourself. Another way is when you receive communion, you go forward. There's a time in the line going up. Ask the Lord for a favor in receiving that into your life. And just, you know, Lord, as I receive you into my life, I, I ask the favor of healing for my brother who's struggling with leukemia or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there are ways in which you can do that. But receiving the body and blood of Jesus in whatever way that we do or can, even spiritual communion, uh, it makes it true the promise that Jesus is with us in this world and he he will be in us and with us and live in us by joining himself to us, and this is the fundamental way that we as Catholics do that, through receiving the Holy Eucharist.
1: Right, his body and blood is our food for the journey, and that is the truth. That is the truth. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Bishop Smith, would you help us close with a prayer and your blessing?
2: Certainly. Father, we entrust ourselves to you As we continue to grow in our Catholic faith, we ask that you would help us grow in our understanding and love of the Eucharist, our understanding and love of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for us that we may be set free from sin and have new life. And we ask this all through Christ our Lord. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
1: Amen. And thank you all for joining us today on The Voice of the Shepherd. We hope you join us again next week. For Bishop Peter Smith this week, I'm Dina Marie Hale. Until our next encounter, may God give you peace.
0: You've been listening to The Voice of the Shepherd with Archbishop Alexander Sample, a production of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. To subscribe to this podcast and access to all of our past shows, visit moderndayradio.com. Please email your comments and questions for the show to info at archdpdx.org. Learn more about the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon online at archdpdx.org. Peace be with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend.